BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Episode 168 of the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Espionage is not really a winning political strategy. Let's start the show. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. Welcome to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. I am your host, Christopher Hahn. Thank you for liking, rating, reviewing, telling your friends about the podcast. Truly, truly appreciate it. Man, it has been a week. I mean, I, I don't think we've experienced a week like this in American politics in August. I mean, I, I mean, probably in my lifetime. I mean, I guess maybe when Nixon resigned in August in 1973, I was, what was it, 70? Yeah, I was a baby. So I don't really remember it. Uh, but this has been a week. And, you know, the big difference between when Nixon was found out to be a criminal and when it it appears to me that Trump is engaged in some sort of criminal conduct with the possession of this, you know, top secret intelligence. I don't know why he felt the need to keep it. When, When Nixon was revealed to be a criminal, Republicans around the country said, yeah, he's a criminal. He needs to go knowing full well that it would be a very dark period for their party following his resignation, and it sure as hell was. Probably about eight years of, of, of horror for them, till really, till 1980. Um, but in this country right now, Republicans seem now to be the party of saying, well, I, I mean, you can't really prove it was espionage, can you? Or, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's okay for him to have kept this stuff, uh, this dossier on... French President Macron, maybe he wanted to look up who he went to high school with and have drinks next time he was in France. I, I, I mean, it's beyond me. I don't understand how these people live in a political world where common sense is just thrown out the window. I'm listening to these people across the country, Republicans, defend what's going on here. The same people who were concerned about emails that may have been kept on a private server for Hillary Clinton. The same people who, you know, basically ran an election on that. The the reason why she lost was those emails and the Jim Comey letter. But this woman sat for 11 hours before the Benghazi committee and talked about this stuff. Why doesn't Trump do that? Why doesn't Donald Trump go sit in front of the January 6th committee for 11 hours and field questions about why it was important for him to have these documents 
in his post-presidency. I'm sure he'll take the the fifth over 400 times like he did in a civil suit in New York with the Attorney General. Over 400 times taking the Fifth Amendment. Taking the Fifth Amendment is really not a good look for somebody who wants to be President of the United States, especially somebody who on multiple occasions has declared that only guilty people take the Fifth Amendment. Now, that's Donald Trump's statement, not mine. It's your right to take the Fifth Amendment. But Donald Trump believes guilty people take the Fifth Amendment. So when he took it 400 plus times to the Attorney General of the state of New York, um, yeah, I guess he's 400 times guilty. Uh, Something of that nature. I don't don't know. Uh, I'm not going to speculate. But in his mind, he is. And that's why he's taking the fifth, because only guilty people take the fifth. Or he also said the mob takes the fifth. And I've often say they behave like a mob, including their willingness, both him and his enablers, to burn this entire country to the ground to save him from the slightest bit of consequences for his own actions and failures. He is willing to burn it to the ground. And there are a lot of Republicans that are willing to go along right with him because they are worried about their precious little member of Congress pin or the size of their office or whatever. They know better and they don't care. And the only way, the only way we will rid this country of this scourge that is MAGA in the Republican Party is if we defeat them soundly this November so that they wake up to the fact that aligning themselves with Donald Trump doesn't make sense for them. That means winning in Texas. That means winning in Florida. That means not only beating Herschel Walker, who I think is the worst Senate candidate in the history of Senate candidates, but also electing Stacey Abrams, governor of of Georgia. We've got to win everywhere. We've got to hold on to the House, which I think is very hard, given gerrymandering. But we've got to do something. We've got to rid this country of them. I mean, if you're an independent listening to me right now, and I know I have some, You have to wake your friends up to the fact that even if you don't like some of the things the Democratic Party stands for, at least they are not the party of criminals and criminality. At least they are not the party that, you know, just will take the Constitution and tear it to shreds. At least they're not the party that is election denying. That's entire platform right now of major figures, not just Donald Trump. Their entire platform of people running around the country is election denying. Denying the results of the election. I'm sorry. We can't pretend that they're normal people, that this is normal times. It's time to start calling it out for what it is. And I'm listening to these newscasters go on and on about how this is going to help Donald Trump. This is not going to help Donald Trump. Why was Donald Trump holding on to these ultra-sensitive documents? I can't wait until the actual affidavit that was used to get this warrant is released to the public. I can't wait. And I can't wait to see how they twist themselves into pretzels to to try to make sense of it all and try to defend themselves and Donald Trump. It is disgusting to me. And it's time to wake up. We, we can't allow this anymore. Everybody in this country needs to come together. If you believe in good governance... If you believe that Trump is a danger to America, you can't vote for any Republican this year because any success they have will just further deepen the hole they've dug themselves into with this MAGA cult that they are now subservient to. All of them, even the good ones, are subservient to this MAGA cult unless they're standing up to it. 
So I know last week I said on the show that uh, Liz Cheney's primary uh, was Tuesday. It's actually this Tuesday or today. You're listening to this on Tuesday. It comes out or it was yesterday. Um, she's probably going to lose. She stood up to the MAGA cult. She's probably going to lose. I hope she doesn't. But uh, and, and I know polling's hard to do in a state with only 400,000 people spread out all over the place. But the last poll I saw had her losing pretty badly. But who knows? Who knows who shows up? But she stood up to him. And I appreciate that. And I think that her and other Republicans like her need to make it very clear. You just can't vote for any of them. They all need to go. They need to suffer losses in places they're not expecting to lose, like Texas, like Florida. I mean, Ron DeSantis, they keep telling us that Ron DeSantis is invincible. He's got $100 million in the bank. I look at polls in Florida, and they're like within four points, five points. I see polls where he's losing. He only won by less than a half a percent four years ago. So what's changed? Uh, Oh, there were no COVID deaths in Florida? No, they didn't report their COVID deaths. They said, oh, these people live in New York, and they're just here for the winter. Whatever. That guy's got to go. Kemp's got to go. And I know Kemp stood up to Trump. He's got to go. They got to lose. They got to lose Georgia. They've got to lose Texas. They got to feel the pain. And then they will break with this nonsense. The vast middle does not support the MAGA movement. So the vast middle, middle needs to come out in November and kick them to the curb. All right. I don't want to spend too much time talking politics right now. I've got a great guest, Joe Calderoni. He wrote a book that you definitely want to pick up. It's called Don't Look Back. It is a historical fiction around the events of 9-11 and the aftermath, the search for the truth that many of the families who lost loved ones, particularly families of firefighters, lost loved ones in the towers that day, uh, went through. Uh, Joe is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who worked for New York Newsday and the Daily News. Uh, So sit back, listen to this, and I'll be back to wrap up the show. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. So it's really fun when you get to interview somebody you know, but you don't you don't know all the backstories of them, and that's what I'm going to do right now. Joe Calderoni is a former Pulitzer Prize winning journalist with the Daily News, the New York Daily News, and he's got a great new book out right now called Don't Look Back. It is a historical fiction, I guess, or a fact-based novel, if you will, about the events of 9-11. Joe, how you doing? Good, good. Thank you, Chris. Joe, man, it's great to finally have you on the show. I've always wanted to talk to you about your career before I met you. You and I met in politics, but you had this long career as a journalist before you came to politics. And I really want to I want to learn a little bit about you here tonight, if that's OK. That would be great. So so let's let's start about this. You, 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 you're a kid growing up. Uh, I guess you grew up in the city, correct? I'm a Queens guy. Yes. And uh, I got the journalism bug uh, in college and. You know, once you get ink in your blood, as they say, you never really get it out. I, I worked at a series of newspapers up the East Coast in Baltimore, Philadelphia, 
and then finally got a crack at the big leagues with Newsday. Uh, and I spent 12 years at Newsday, mostly at New York Newsday. Right. We had a 10-year run in there. And then when New York Newsday went down in 1995, I was uh, able to jump over to the New York Daily News. Uh, both at Newsday and at uh, the Daily News, I covered City Hall. And I also was on the investigations team. You, you as a, a student of media and all things political, you'll you'll know the name Bob Green. Yep. I was for, fortunate enough to work for Bob Green at Newsday. Uh, learned a tremendous uh, amount uh, from him. Uh, and on 9-11, uh, I was the investigations editor at the New York Daily News. And I had done a number of stories about the fire department, the FDNY. So I had some sources there, and it was just a natural uh, thing for me to uh, cover uh, the fire department in the wake of uh, 9-11. And the book, uh, which is a novel, as you said, it's historical fiction, uh, comes out of that reporting and, and uh, you know, getting to know some of the families uh, uh, who lost loved ones uh, on that tragic day. So let's talk about this. So you, you get the journalism bug in college. You went to college in Maryland, correct? That's good. That's correct. College Park. I'm a terp. There you go. <laughs> and I guess you worked for the school newspaper and all that other stuff down there. Yeah, yeah. I, I spent way too much time doing that and not enough time going to class. But yes. I know that feeling. I, I worked for the student newspaper my freshman year of college, and then I got it more into student government and sports and things like that. But I uh, I remember how much work it was being there and writing yeah. and, and, and being on deadline. Yeah. And, and back then, I mean, you know, when I was in college, we, we did have word processors, but it was still like cut and paste. Like we were cutting out, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was literally cut and paste, cutting paper and pasting it. <laughs> it was. Yeah, we had glue pots. We had glue pots yeah. back then. Yeah. Was, but nobody knows what we're talking about. No, <laughs> no, nobody knows what they're to what we're talking about right now, even though the, the technology was better by the time I went to college. But it didn't make it to the student papers yet. So it was. Uh, and, and so you go there, you get your first job. What was your first job in journalism? So my first job actually was at the Baltimore News American. Uh, I was very fortunate. It was a daily newspaper in Baltimore. It was competing with the Baltimore Sun. Honestly, it was on its last legs. It was a Hearst newspaper. Right. Actually, the property, uh, the real estate became more valuable than the newspaper, unfortunately. And they- oh, I feel like I love it. No, Baltimore. Yeah, but, that happens a lot. I mean, that happened to Newsday here on Long Island. They sold their headquarters. They they yeah. rented something else, something a little smaller. And yes, but thankfully, Newsday is still publishing and doing very well. Yes, yeah. Well, it's one of the few. Um, so you there? What was your beat when you were there? So I actually covered uh, labor. I covered organized labor. Uh, Bethlehem Steel was still uh, very much operating, and I, I was fortunate uh, to get that beat. I mean, it was a shot and beer town. Uh, and Bethlehem Steel was still very much a huge employer at the time, so learned a lot about uh, the labor movement and uh, and Baltimore uh, in general. Right. Great, great opportunity. And then you move your way up to Philadelphia. Which paper are you at there? Uh, the Philadelphia Daily News, which was the uh, sister paper to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, uh, again, another great opportunity. Also covered labor uh, there. Uh and also some government stuff. So, uh, you know, and then finally, uh, you know, I'm the Queens guy. I always wanted to come back to New right. York. Uh, 
so it was able to uh, uh, eventually get get up here uh, and cover. Uh, I went from covering labor in Philadelphia to the Smithtown beat for Newsday. That was my first. That's great assignment for Newsday. Uh, but eventually, you know, they opened up the New York edition, and as a Queens guy, I put my hand up and I said, "Can I go in there, please?" And uh, they let me go in, and I covered uh, uh, Donald Manis, the Queensboro president at the time. And Big put- scandal with Donald Manis. Were you involved yeah. with covering that? No, I was kind of really in the cheap seats on that one. Other people had already, uh, you know, Jimmy Breslin amongst them. Right, yes, of course. Had, 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 uh, had that one there. Basically made Jimmy Breslin a household name, that, that story. Well, among, among many other uh, right. stories. But yeah. Yes, yes, but I did cover uh, Manus, and I covered Queensboro Hall, so I, I got to learn about city government, covered the Board of Estimate, and eventually made my way to City Hall. I did get a seat in Room Nine at one point. Uh, actually, I was in the I was in the basement room. There was this uh, overflow <laughs> at City Hall, but you know, getting to cover City Hall was just a tremendous education. Uh, I covered Koch. Uh, and then Dinkins, and then Giuliani. And when you see, you know, back then there were no iron gates around City Hall. Right. Completely open. Anybody, as Ed Koch used to say, anybody with a subway token can come down here and tell me what they think. And he was absolutely right. And they did. They often did. did. (laughs) They did. And, And as a reporter, you know, someone learning about the city just, it was just tremendous to watch all the political players, all the civic leaders, uh, whatever the issue of the day was. They showed up on the steps of City Hall, and you know it wasn't always newsworthy, but you you always learned something every yeah. day. You were able to learn something, and it was just tremendous. Of those three mayors, who was the most responsive to the press? No, oh, without question, uh, Ed Koch. I mean, Ed Koch. We had a, a, a joke that he was. Uh, unavoidable for comment. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would have a, you know a briefing in the morning. Then he'd have a, a radiator, what they call a radiator talk, in the in the rotunda of City Hall. There are these uh, elaborate yep. radiators. Meet me at the radiator, you know. And then and then he'd, he'd come back from lunch and he'd have another thought. I mean, he was just uh, he was very entertaining, very intelligent. Uh, and he welcomed, uh, you know, most press coverage. Now his third term, you know, as third terms tend to go, you're a student of politics. Yep. You know, you maybe hang around too long. Uh, third term, you know, didn't go too well. But but he was, uh, I think, a tremendous mayor and uh, uh, really did a great job. And uh, and and Dinkins also was was open uh, to the press. I think he was a little uh, a little more touchy about it. Uh, and didn't have the the shtick that right. Koch uh, was just he was entertaining. It was just you know. Yeah, no, he had that shtick even before he was mayor when he was a congressman. That's right. why he became mayor. Frankly, <laughs> it's like absolutely. You know, yeah, and Dinkins kind of came out of nowhere to become the mayor, uh, and yeah. was a very low key guy in a lot of ways. And then he's yeah. the mayor of yeah. you know the biggest city in the world with like him with with a press corps that fills three rooms. Yep, yep, yep. The hardest job on the planet. Uh, anything that you saw, you know, covering those mayors that, that made you raise your eyebrow? Oh, every day, you know, <laughs> I mean, that was our job to, uh, be the watchdog. So yeah, there was always, uh, always issues that, uh, a whistleblower would come to you with and, you know, you, you have to, as a reporter, you got to try to 
separate the wheat from the shaft. And, uh, you know, you get a lot of tips. A lot of them go by the wayside. You can't prove them or there's nothing there or it's just somebody with an agenda. So, uh, you know, the job is to try to really uh, ferret out uh, the facts and, and, and determine what is a legitimate story. 9-11 comes around now. I know for me, I was working for Senator Schumer on 9-11. Uh, and you were working in the uh, in the city for the Daily News at the time. It, it changed all of us, I think. Um, yeah, no, no, no question. Left an indelible mark, I think, on uh, almost everybody who was in the metro area that day. Certainly, the people uh, who worked in the downtown area and and across the the country and the world. I mean, it was a you know it was a, a moment in history that uh, is seared into all of our memories, our collective memories, and we're. We're coming up on the 21st anniversary, believe it or not, yeah. of the attack. It's amazing because I talked to, you know, kids and interns and stuff that just weren't even born now right. on 9-11. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and they're fully well, formed adults and they don't, they don't really have any memory of it. And, and to me, it's like it was a defining moment in my career and in my life, frankly. I worked non I mean, I was working for Chuck Schumer at the time. After 9-11, I think we worked for three months with like one day off. Thanksgiving, I think, was like the only day we took off. And we just around, it wasn't just work. It was like intense, around the clock. You know, ma- really, the pace was unbelievable. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure that's true. And I mean, you guys were in government. You, you were trying to put the, put the city back together. I mean, it was, uh, it was a very difficult time, I think, for, for lots of folks. It was. It did bring out the best in us, though, because we all worked together. It didn't matter what party, you know, what your background was. We all worked together for like a, I would say for a good year. There was that feeling of we're Americans. We were attacked. We're going to rebuild. And we're not going to let this get in our way anymore. Uh, and, right. and, and, and we haven't had a moment like that in this country since then, I think. And it's, yeah. it's a shame. It's too bad that it takes a, a, a an event like that to uh, bring bring people together. And it changed the trajectory of my career. I was going to do two or three years with Chuck Schumer, and then I was going to go back and practice law. I was going to be done. I wound up staying with Chuck for almost six years, and I tried to practice law. And of course, I, I came back and worked with Tom Swazi, and that's when you and I met. And yeah. I, re- I remember you throwing your Pulitzer at me when I... When I asked you if you were a Pulitzer Prize winner, you reached into a drawer in your desk and you pulled it out and you threw it at me. <laughs> I said, can I see it? And you threw it at me. I, I think I remember that correctly uh, back in the day. So you're working the city desk. You're covering the fire department on 9-11. So I was actually the investigations editor and, and I had done some stories about the fire department. So I had developed some sources there. And, uh, you know, I, I remember... Uh, of course, like every reporter, we were, everyone was checking in with uh, all of their sources and whoever they could get in touch with at the time. And I remember, you know, when, when uh, one of my sources told me, you know, we, we lost 300 guys. We've lost entire companies. Yeah. We lost, you know, the brass, the, 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 the chiefs, uh, the hierarchy of the department. I mean, it was decimated. And I just... I, I always felt that the story of the firefighters, even though it's you know one of the most covered events in the history of the world and, and certainly in the history of New York, I always felt that the story of what happened to the 343 firefighters who perished had not fully been told. Right. That's why, that's why I decided to do this book, and it took me 10 years to do, and it took me uh, you know uh, a long time to get an agent. I, I had to buy a whole new file cabinet to uh, handle all the rejections. <laughs> I know that feeling. 
yeah, more than 20 rejections from agents, but I learned it only takes one to say yes. And luckily, a friend of mine, uh, you probably know Tom Robbins. Yep. Uh, he, he introduced me to his agent, Ed Breslin, who uh, actually read the book and uh, liked it and took him a while to find a publisher. But and you wrote the book on spec. Like, you didn't write a, a treatment for the book. You wrote That's the book. Correct. That's correct. It was just, it was one of those stories that, you know, just never uh, let go of me. And uh, I wrote it entirely on spec not knowing, you know, whether it would ever see the light of day, which is why I'm so grateful that, uh, you know, post And it's a passion. It's a passion project for you. I mean, you, you met a lot of these families, right? Not the one, you know, the books of fictional accounting of it, but you met a lot of the real people that you base these characters on. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a compilation, a mishmash of characters, the, uh, but yes, I did cover some of the families uh, after 9-11 who were looking for answers. You know, right after 9-11, there was a lot of, rightfully so, there was a lot of hero worship. Yep. Really, a lot of the firefighters did tremendous job of uh, helping to get people out of the building. Yep. But there were also there were a lot of uh, mistakes and, and uh, communication problems and command and control problems, and all of that. Uh, Chris was was really well documented in Chapter Nine of the nine eleven Commission Report, yep. which did it, which I think did a very good job of looking at the international and national and local implications. But very few people have read Chapter Nine of the nine eleven Commission Report. So the the concept was to take that chapter, which dealt with the city's response and some of the problems, and put it in a historical uh, fiction mm. context that more people could relate to the story. Excellent. That, 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 was, that was my goal. Well, I think you've achieved that goal from what little I mean. I haven't read the whole book, but I've read part of it. And uh, I think you've achieved, look, you're a great writer. We all know that. Uh, and it's, it's amazing what you put together here. We're going to walk through it. So let's talk about this book. Why did you write it? What are you hoping to communicate? So uh, again, I uh, you know I really felt that the story of the firefighters hadn't fully been told, and I wanted to also tell not only their stories but the stories of the families. The families, you know, after the event, and most of the book actually deals with post nine eleven. Mm. The majority the majority of the book is post nine eleven, and the families. There are two very strong female characters in the book. Uh, one is the mother of a probie uh, who was like six weeks out of the uh, academy. And he perished uh, on 9-11. And the other is a whistleblower inside uh, uh, City Hall. Mm. And they team up with a reporter, with a tabloid reporter, surprise, yep. uh, to unearth uh, you know, what happened uh, to their loved ones uh, on 9-11 and some of the failures uh, that day that, that may have contributed to some of those deaths. You know, the firefighters, again, they were... Tremendous. They did a tremendous job, but there's no question, as documented in the 9-11 Commission report, there were guys in the North Tower, uh, it seems uh, pretty clear, that, that may not have even been aware that the South Tower came down. And that's because the, the radio communications uh, that they had were inadequate. Uh, they, they worked, I think, Fire Commissioner Tom Von Exen, uh, who... who uh, testified before the 9-11 Commission, and I quote him uh, uh, towards the end of the book, uh, you know, he said 
he, he acknowledged the communication issues and he said, you know, the radios work some of the time. They didn't work all of the time. Mm. Uh, so, you know, uh, just too many. And, and there were a lot of factors uh, that, that were part of that. They were, you know, it was a shift change. There were guys that jumped on the rigs. Uh, they were supposed to get off duty. Yep. So tremendous number of firefighters showed up that day. Uh, they can't all talk uh, on the on the walkie, the handy talkies that they have. They're point to point. Too many people uh, on on one frequency, and there's no question. Again, as, as documented by the commission, uh, that there were issues that day, but. There are also issues in that the families fought for months, even years, to get information uh, from City Hall uh, about what happened that day. And this and, book and, is this book is kind of about that fight. Yes, absolutely about that fight. Again, it is fiction. I got to emphasize. Yes, you know, but it's, it's fiction. Boring. But you know, you were an investigative journalist at the time. One of the lead characters is an investigative journalist. I assume yes. he's a, uh, an, a, a, a an Italian with a nice full head of hair. I'm assuming. <laughs> Actually, he's Hispanic. But, but All right. Well, he's a Calderon, not a Calderoni. We had to, we had to mix it up. But, <laughs> but it, it is, you know, Chris, you know, from your own background, when you're in politics and you're around journalism, you meet all kinds of characters. Yep. That's, one of, that's one of the draws. Every day you're meeting different people and you're learning things. So I was a reporter for 25 uh, years, roughly. And I was at City Hall and other beats, law enforcement, the courts. So I had all these characters, tabloid journalism, yep. all these characters in my head. And the, the challenge it was to wrestle all those characters into uh, a book that would be readable and of interest to the public. So that's, that's part of And you met probably a lot of these families after 9-11. And you heard their questions, right? They were looking for answers, just as your inquiring mind as a journalist was looking for answers. So I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, I don't think they built there any one person because I, I know I met, you know, dozens of families who lost people no, no, on, on 9-11. The compilation of people uh, that, that are represented uh, through the fictional uh, characters. Right. For sure. Right. Have but, any of those families read the book? Have they reached out? Uh, not yet. You know, the book was only released really last week. So, right. Uh, you know, I have I've had some good uh, feedback. Actually, People Magazine named it uh, last week as the uh, best new and paperback uh, book. Uh, they called it an eye-opening thriller. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, you know, Vicky Schnapps at Dance Papers, uh, she uh, she called it a riveting read. Uh, so it's getting some good reviews, which I'm very pleased about. And, uh, you know, the people who have, uh, read it and, uh, some of them are commenting on, on the Amazon site, uh, seems to be, uh, pretty positive. That's so, great. Uh, you know, when you're working on a book like this for 10 years, um, uh, down to basement, I'm typing away. My wife is wondering what the heck I'm doing down there. Right. Time, although she was very supportive overall, uh, but you know, you're, 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 it's a it's a lonely process, and you're wondering whether uh, it's going to be any good and how it's going to be received. So, I'm pleased that you know, uh, since it came out uh, uh, last week, that uh, that it has been so far, it's been pretty well received. But it's a lonely process that you felt you needed to go through. It was kind of cathartic, I would imagine, because I mean, look, I wish I had the ability to sit down and write. Like you do, I just can't. I just don't. I've I've been offered to write books. I've tried to partner with people. I could just well, never just sit there. And, 
you have other skills. You have other skill sets. I'm a mouth guy. I'm not a. I'm not a. I'm not a type guy. You know. I'm. A, I'm you know. I'm one of the. I, I've got an oral fixation, as they would say in the in the business. <laughs> so, but, you know, you got to just sit there. I could talk for hours, but typing, it just. I, I sit there, and I. Next thing I know, I'm playing Tetris. <laughs> well, it is. It is when you finally come together. And I hired an editor, a freelance editor, who really helped me uh, with the book. But when you finally uh, have a, a, a coherent storyline and you've got a lot of characters that you've developed and, and they're interacting in a way that, you know, I think will hold the reader's interest, uh, you know, that is, that is a satisfying event when you, when you finally get to that uh, point. But did you feel, you know, what I'm trying to get at, did you feel like this was something you had to do? You had to tell this story this compilation of all the experiences that you met kind of boiling down into something that is more, that is easier to follow than the nine 11 report or the. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, we're 21 years almost now to the anniversary. And I think through a historical fiction lens, we can actually see something more clearly now uh, looking back. That's what, that's what you do in in history, right? You're able to look back a little clearer. Uh, and I, I hope that's what uh, what I've been able to do. Uh, and, you know, there's also a Rudy Giuliani uh, element here. The, the title of the book, Don't Look Back, uh, as a reporter, that was a line uh, that they were very good at putting it out. Don't blame us. It was the terrorists. That's who you know, crashed the planes into the building, all of which is accurate and, of course, true. But it was also true that the city's response was was not maybe where it should have been and certainly had some some issues that were worth looking at. And that's like a really good thing to point out, because most people look back on 9-11 and they think of Rudy Giuliani as this great leadership moment. And I think in the moment itself, he you know, he does deserve some credit for, you know, being a calming leadership voice. But what you're saying is, is that the city's mismanagement leading up to 9-11 probably led to some of these firefighters dying un- unnecessarily. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, the 9-11 Commission report uh, backs that up. There, there were definitely operational errors. You know, uh, one, of the, one of the things Rudy prided himself on was uh, trying to get the, the police department and the fire department to talk to each other. You know, he formed... He, he created a command center in, in one of the trade uh, center buildings yep. that actually they weren't able to use on 9-11. Right, because it, it was destroyed. Not, not, it was destroyed. Uh, uh, obviously, they put the command centers in the, in, in the wrong place, in the, in the lobby of the, uh, of, the, of the towers, which, you know, in retrospect, and of course, hindsight is always twenty twenty. The, the police department had helicopters up in the air. Uh, they they had some indication that that the buildings uh, were about to come down. That information apparently didn't make it. Yeah, at least didn't get in time to the fire uh, department officials. You know, the the fire officials who were in the lobby had less information than a lot of people who were just watching TV. Yeah, uh, it, 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 the 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 flow of information was not good. Uh, on that day, uh, both to the command uh, center folks uh, on the fire scene and also to the individual firefighters uh, who were. Whenever whenever I think of 9-11, I think of people fleeing that building and I think of the firefighters running in as the other people are fleeing. And it always gets me choked up. I mean, I just yeah. think about those men and, and some women just going in, trying to save lives uh, and just dying. 
And yeah, look, they 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 knew they weren't putting out that fire. It was a it was a it was a search and rescue. Yeah, right. I mean, there's no way that anybody was going to get enough water. But that was who they were, though. These these were some of the finest. You know, that's why they're called the New York's finest. Some of the finest people on earth that were willing to kind of risk that danger. You know, that's why you know I'll never say anything bad about a a firefighter ever. Ever yeah. in my life. I mean, it's just, you know, it's not something I would do. I mean, I wouldn't want to go and. They're, they're terrific. They're terrific. But they also deserve the best from the city. I agree. Uh, they deserve the best equipment. They deserve radios that work. Uh, and, you know, I and, think. And they important. deserve to have their stories told. And yeah. and I think that's what you're trying to do here, too. You're, you're telling the story, the untold story that really hasn't been told well, I think. And I, if anybody's yeah. going to do it right, it's going to be you. So I'm going to tell everybody. Check out this book, Don't Look Back, by Joe Calderoni. It's available on Amazon right now. Go buy it, because Joe's a great guy. He was there. He lived it. He boiled this down into a way you could actually read it and enjoy it. I wouldn't be surprised if it's made into a movie at some point. There aren't a lot of historical fictions about the aftermath of 9-11, and Joe, you did a great job uh, doing that. So thank you for that, and, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Joe Calderoni. Buy the book. Don't look back. I'm Chris Hahn, the Aggressive Progressive. Check out a new episode of the Aggressive Progressive podcast every Tuesday. You know, the election is heating up just as the year is winding down. Stick with me. I'll tell you the truth as I see it. Download the Aggressive Progressive on Pandora or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, that's Joe Calderoni. I hope you buy that book. I hope he gets the aggressive-progressive bounce. Again, the book's called Don't Look Back. The author's name is Joe Calderoni. Go on Amazon right now and buy it. He's a great guy. Um, Some of you listening to me probably weren't even born when 9-11 happened. I know you've heard of it uh, because I don't have a lot of dumb listeners. Uh, You should definitely read this book. Joe's a great guy, smart guy, excellent writer. You're going to enjoy it. It's a good read. It's going to make you think. All right, just finally tonight, I don't want to spend too much time. It is the summer. Things are going to heat up this week. Let's all pray that people in this country come to their senses and do the right thing this November and kick this MAGA crowd to the curb Because that's really what needs to happen. As I said in the opening of the show, the only thing Republicans respect is power. And the only thing they crave is power. And if you take that power away from them, this drug, which is this MAGA base that Trump ginned up, will not seem as appealing as it does right now. Right now, they can't walk away from it because it's it's how they get elected. It's, It's what puts them in power. You take that power away from them. Those who are left, when they're picking up the pieces, will understand that the sacrifice they made, the sacrifice of you know better judgment for Donald Trump's support is not worth it. And they will do everything they can to get rid of Donald Trump and rid him from our politics. We won't even have to do it. All we have to do is win in November. So do everything you can to get Democrats elected in November. All right, with that, I'm going to remind you now, as I always do, to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything, even me. Seek the truth. I know it's out there. 
and I know you'll find it if you look for it. And I'll be back here again next week to tell you the truth as I see it. I'm Chris Hahn. Thanks for listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast.